Good morning to each of you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We should have some handouts coming for you. So 1 Samuel chapter 8. So uh, it's already been mentioned what a pivotal point this is uh, in the First uh, Samuel chapter eight gets us to in the life of uh, Christianity. So what what we get and what First Samuel is really all about is getting us to the life of David. Um, so timeline timelines are huge for me. They help me out a lot. So uh, if you right now we are two thousand years on the other side of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and so Jesus splits all of human history. We, we literally uh, reset our calendars um, at, at the birth of Jesus. So um, about a thousand years before Jesus, we get David. And David is uh, the, the major, uh, he's not the first king, but he is the major king uh, of, for, for uh, the people of Israel. So David comes a thousand years after Abraham. So if I've got you kind of confused, big picture, you back up from Jesus, you go 2,000 years back and you get Abraham. That's when God called his people. Um, we now call the Jewish people. And you go halfway in between Abraham and Jesus and you land at David. And uh, that's, that's uh, where God at that point will give us a promise to David. And he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the world through one of your sons and it's going to be a king. But here's what's interesting. Um, what's interesting is you would think if God is going to use a king through the line of David to save all of the world, you would think the story about which we get that king would go something like this. Today's the day. You're going to get your king. This is the one who's going to save it. It's exactly as I planned. So today we start with this new idea of a king. But 1 Samuel chapter 8 is how we get this idea of a king, and you're going to see it goes nothing like that. Um, it almost looks as if this wasn't even God's plan. That's what 1 Samuel 8 is. 1 Samuel 8 is us getting the king, and yet it almost looks like this wasn't even God's plan. So I'll say all of that to say, how in the world we get the incredible idea of a king out of this chapter, when it almost looks like it's not God's plan, how does all that get worked out? Yeah, I'm not even going to touch that this morning. So good luck, Pastor Mark. That's you next week. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I don't even know if you're going to have time to touch that, but that is so interesting. Keep that in mind as we go through this. It, nothing else. It is so interesting how God uses our senselessness in his providence. I feel so much comfort by that. My stupidity, and there's a lot of it, my senselessness, my bad decisions, God has perfect room and providence to work it all out. Praise God for that. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, uh, or Abijah. 
they were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in the ways in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, your sons are old, or you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us just like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So verse 10 all the way to 18, this is the ways of this king that they're begging you for. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king over them. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint them for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards, orchards and give those to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young, of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put them to work, to his work. Verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your flocks, oh, and you will be his slaves. Verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord, that's Yahweh, will not answer you in that day. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of Yahweh. And then Yahweh said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Unbelievable that this was, this all happened uh, over 3,000 years ago, and we're reading about it today. We can gather around it. We can gather around it with confidence that all of it's true. We can gather around it with confidence that we have it. Father, as easy as it is to sit back in judgment over the Israelites and what appears to be their really bad decisions. 
Father, every one of us can relate to where they are. We know what it feels like to feel vulnerable, to be anxious, to feel exposed, to worry, to feel scared, to not know about what the future might hold. We know what it feels like to worry about those things that are outside of us that may prevail upon us. We know what, it's worry about, what it is to worry about our own selves, our own families. We know the incredible tendency to just want to grasp a hold, to see exactly how it is that all things are going to work out. Father, I pray that you'll use this text this morning to drive us not to erase this feeling of feeling vulnerable, but to drive us to King Jesus, the only one who can ever protect us, even from ourselves. We pray these things. We ask that your spirit, he will bear witness to Jesus, the Son of God. And we pray, Father, that you will be glorified in all that's said and done. Amen. So there's a lot that's fascinating about U.S. history. Um, it's really, really unbelievable. Um, but, but one of the things that's fascinating is the incredible fortune that the U.S. has found in uh, landing on the good side of some really lopsided deals. For example, in 1867, Russia um, uh, gave us uh, all of Alaska for $7 million. Gosh, um, I should have checked under the ground on that one. Uh, but nothing beats the Louisiana Purchase. So remember what all we got in that deal? Just Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, parts of Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Louisiana for $15 million. Now in today's money, $15 million is about five hundred million dollars just to give you some economy of scale here when apple built their latest headquarters they paid 10 times that they paid five billion dollars for the latest headquarters so we got all of that for right at today's money 500 million dollars um that's unbelievable so i looked up some of what sports writers would consider to be some of the worst trades ever in sports history just thought that'd be fun um, in 1988, evidently, the trade of Wayne Gretzky from Edmonton to the LA Kings is considered one of the worst trades uh, in sports history. But everybody seemed to agree, which is kind of a thing, uh, a rare thing for sports writers. Um, I won't go off on that. But, um, uh, but in 1920, the trade of the great Bambino from Boston to New York is considered to be the very worst decision, the worst trade in sports history. Well, um, I believe uh, that uh, there's little doubt that as we finish 1 Samuel chapter 8, you will have an opinion on the worst trade in all of human history when Israel decided to trade their perfectly good, competent king for a king like all the other nations. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 and through 4 says, Samuel became old. He, he made his sons judges over Israel. 
The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, or Abiyah. They were judges in Beersheba. His sons did not walk in his ways. They had turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So many years had passed from 1 Samuel 7, where we got this incredible viewpoint of, of uh, Samuel calling the people back uh, to himself, um, uh, or Samuel calling the people of God, back to God. Um, and uh, the Bible now tells us that through this time, Samuel is old. The Bible is a book that if it calls you old, well, you're old. Um, so uh, Samuel has two sons. The name of one is Joel or Yoel, which is a combination of two Hebrew words for God, one Yahweh and one Elohim. So what it means is Yahweh, that is our God. He is the God. It's a pretty awesome name. Uh, and then his other son is, uh, we would say Abijah, but they may pronounce more like Abiyah which is a combination of the Hebrew word Abib, which would mean father, and then Yah, Yahweh. So Yahweh is our father. So there's some double irony being pointed out here in the name of the two sons of Samuel first. There's the irony of the fact that uh, their names don't match their characters at all, given what we're going to find out about these wayward, corrupt sons of Samuel. More on that in a bit. Second, though, there's a big irony that the entire passage calls into question whether the people of Israel, that is Yahweh's people, believe either proposition represented by these names. Do the people of Israel really believe that Yahweh is the only God? And do the people of Israel really believe that Yahweh is their father? In verse 3, we're told that the sons of Samuel walked in a different path from their father. They cared more about the world and gaining things of the world than honoring God. This seems to be a precursor as to why the elders uh, came to Samuel in verse 4. In verse 4, the elders corner Samuel. They, they're considering the prospect of life without Samuel, uh, and uh, they aren't getting very warm fuzzies about life with his only the, the sons that he's now appointed. They feel vulnerable and they feel exposed. And they want some assurance. Let me just pause there. Do an inward look real quick. Do you know what it feels like to feel vulnerable or exposed? Something doesn't feel right. We actually feel this quite often. Uh, it's what makes us worry. It's what makes us concerned. It's what makes us go try to fix something. When we feel vulnerable or exposed, that, that's what the people felt like. They needed a change. They can't live like this. Humans can't. We can't live with vulnerability and feeling exposed. We, got to, we, we feel like we need to solve that. They, they decide that this is the change they want. So succinctly stated, the Bible's such good literature. It says this at the end of verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They want a king. Why do they want a king? 
I believe the text is going to point us to three fundamental reasons why they want a king. And we're going to walk through these. And I believe that these, re- these three reasons why they wanted a king will serve for our lives, for our souls, as three helpful learning opportunities. The first reason they wanted a king points to the human desire for protection from forces outside of us. As humans, we desire protection from forces outside of us. So we can see this spelled out in verses 19 through 20. So I'm now kind of moving us down to the bottom of the chapter because there, so the the chapter flows like this. Hey, Samuel's got his sons, they're corrupt. Hey, the, the judges say, I mean, the elders say that doesn't look good. They come and ask for a king. Samuel goes to God. God says, hey, tell them this is what they'll get when they get a king. So he goes back to, Samuel goes back to the people, says, hey, this is what God says. And they go, yeah, that sounds pretty terrific. We'll take one of those. And, and then they explain why they want that. So this is in that last part where they're explaining why they want that. So this is it. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we, that we may also be like the other nations and that our king may judge us, and here we go, and that he may go out before us and fight our battles. So this is right after God had given them the plethora of reasons why anointing a king would be a terrible idea, and their response was, cool story, we would really like one of those. Um, so they try to explain themselves, and what is one of their reasons? Well, one of the reasons is, well, we want one who will go out before us and fight a battle for us. They want a king to protect them from outside forces, outside enemies. Well, actually, this is a very reasonable request. First of all, threats against Israel were real. The book of Joshua tells us a story of how Israel moved into the neighborhood. They moved into the neighborhood by kicking everybody out around them. This might be likened to a boy going uh, into his brother's room, taking over his brother's bed and kicking him out in order that he might sleep in it. While he might have won a temporary place to sleep, uh, he better sleep with one eye open because big bro might come back, right? Well, the, the, the book after Joshua judges is a story of Israel struggling to live in the neighborhood where they just kicked everybody out of it, right? So over and over, their exiled former neighbors throughout the book of Judges, well, they come back to visit, and they're not coming back for block parties or yard sales. They want to burn their homes and kill them all. So the threats are actually quite real. They had a right to be concerned about protection from outside threats. Fair point. We get it. Well, then that begs the question, whose idea was this anyway? Who told them to go get this choice land and kick everybody else out of it? What type of plan was that? Well, that was God's plan. He's the one that told him to do that. So why would God do that? That's a really fair question. As you read where they are, why would you do that to them, God? Well, welcome to one of the most common themes of the Bible, and it's really interesting. God rarely leads his people into safety and comfort, free from concern, rarely. To the contrary, he often leads his people into danger where he alone is your only, our only hope, 
our only source of strength and help. Consider, for example, the route out of Egypt. Uh, if you go look at that, I gave you a map, you can look at it later, but if you go look at how they left Egypt, how you go from Egypt to where they got to go, there's about a dozen other ways that you could leave from Egypt and get into the promised land and not have to have a sea parting event. But no, God does not do that. Instead, he takes them and pins them in purposefully, leaving them with no one else but in God alone to trust so that he may save them. And in a similar fashion, God decided to give them the choicest, most desirable land around only after booting their neighbors out. So they are surrounded by people who want them to go, want them gone and they want them dead. All the while, so you, you're surrounded by people who want you gone and dead. All the while, you have no formal army, nor do you have a king to lead that army. You're fully dependent upon God for protection at all time. God uses our sense of vulnerability to draw us to himself. So we can understand why the people desire protection from outside forces. But here's where it gets interesting. The precise language here. Ha! Huh, unreal. So listen to this. It's tremendous. Here's the reason. I mean, it's so precise that our king may judge us, but listen to this, and go out before us and fight our battles for us. Now, how often do you think the kings of the other nations were going out before their people into battle? None. And, and how often do you think the king from the other nations fought the battles for them? None. We know it's an absurd concept because just a few verses earlier when God told him what was going to happen when they had a king, God told him the opposite is going to happen. He told him in verses 11 and 12, he will take, this is a king, he's going to take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and some to make implements of war and the equipments of chariots. So God tells him, if you get a king, just like all the other nations, he's going to take your sons to do his yard work and his chores. And if a time of battle comes, if and when that happens, he'll direct your son straight into harm's way so that he will be protected. God tells him, if you get a king like the other nations, he will make you fight and die in order to protect him. Their response, yeah, exactly right. We want a king like the other nations, so he'll fight for us and keep us from dying. Huh? It, it feels like the most confusing conversation you ever had. It feels like talking to a toddler. Are you serious? That's the point. But hold on, it gets better. What happened? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. What happened in the chapter right before this one? I'm not talking about, hey, this is a story that happened one time in the Old Testament. I'm talking about in the chapter right before this one. What happened? Ah, you just can't make it up. So the people are worshiping God, and some of the folks from the old neighborhood come knocking. Hey, they're not happy, right? Remember, they got kicked out. Who is it? It's the Philistines. The people get all upset. The Philistines are here. They're going to kill us all. Verse 10 and 11 in chapter 7. Can't make it up. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord, who's that? That's Yahweh. He thundered a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. He threw them into confusion and they were defeated. Hold on. Before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Beth Car. So what happened? Well, as the Philistines came to destroy them, God, their current king, went out before them. And what else did he do? He fought the battle, what? For them. <laughs> God did the exact thing that they said they wanted a new king to do, which also happens to be the exact opposite of what their new king, they so desperately want, will do. It's the irony of all ironies. It's on full display. The only people on planet Earth who had a good, capable king are the very ones shopping for a new one. Oh, heart, I know that feeling. The whole irony of the chapter is they wanted a king all the while they have a perfect king. This chapter is not intended to make the Israelites look dumb, but normal. This is how normal, broken humans act. Folks, we have been perfectly, effectively diagnosed. That's me. I'm almost sure that's you. Because you and I happen to live in one of the most stable, safest nations in world history, it may appear at first glance that we just kind of have, have it hard to relate with the Israelites. But I believe upon further reflection, we can certainly relate to their fear over outside forces. There are things that we can't control that quickly leave us shaken. All it takes is a news report that sounds like something that could happen to us and we're doing anything we can to build up protection from harm. Let the economic conditions around us change and our savings balances drop considerably and we're shaken. Let our health take a turn and we feel out of control, we're shaken. Let us sit around and think about how our life doesn't seem to fit what we thought it would be like and we are shaken. Like the Israelites, we crave protection from things outside of us, things we can't control. Like the Israelites, we look for protection in places that can't bring the security we need. Hold a while, hold a while. We serve a good, capable king who can and will take care of us. A king who has already gone before us and fought the battle for us. So if you're here, and it sounds an odd thing to hear, that this idea that we have a king who's gone before us, and he's already fought a battle for us. Let me explain. So at the heart of the Christian message is the notion that our biggest enemy, it isn't a nation, it isn't our health, it isn't our family problems, it's not our anxieties, no, no, no. The Christian message says that our biggest enemy is that a just and a right 
God is angry over our sin. We have offended God with our sin, and we deserve His judgment. Given our sin, we deserve the consequences of death, and we deserve the eternal punishment of God. This, says the Bible, is our biggest and our worst problem from the outside. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus went before us and faced off with our two greatest enemies, sin and death. He went on before us and left both of them powerless. Just like God went before the Israelites and routed the Philistines, Jesus went ahead, to, uh, ahead of us onto a Roman cross and he routed sin. And he rose from a tomb and he conquered death. We have a good, we have a capable, we have a king who's gone before us and fights for us. The other thing that it shows in this text is the human desire, not just from protection from the outside, but from protection from within, protection from ourselves. Look with me at verses 4 through 8. Then all the elders gathered together, Samuel Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Point is for us a new king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done, from this day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. So the elders of Israel were very troubled by the corrupt deeds of uh, Joel and Abijah. And, and, uh, and now it's even worse because Samuel's turned around and appointed them to be judges. So the Bible doesn't at all condemn their concern. In fact, it seems that it's a very well-placed concern. In Exodus chapter 23, the, the chapter that's best three weeks of your life, if you're tuned into Equip Hour, um, the, uh, uh, that, as we walk through that chapter, there we get serious warning about the behavior of bribery among leaders. It's, it's no joke. So in Exodus 23, 8, it says, And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So as God gave his people the law and he gave them their justice system, a beautiful system, he warned them multiple times, I mean over and over, about the, the problem of bribery among the leaders. So it's very reasonable that the elders saw this happening among their new leaders, the sons of Samuel, and they thought this signaled very dark days ahead for the nation. They would have been justified to feel unprotected and vulnerable. The problem was not their sense of vulnerability. It was their answer to it. Now appoint for us a king to judge us just like all the other nations. So recall, as we saw in our Exodus study, the incredible gift that God gave his people, a law, a legal code for sinful humans delivered straight from heaven. There had been nothing like it in human history. And now the people 
want to set that aside and they want a king that will judge him. How? Just like all the other nations. What an affront in the face of God. Samuel takes exception to this, and rightly so. Not only to date does, does, has he shown great wisdom and faithfulness in the way that he's judged the people, but his very existence speaks of God's protection for the people. Recall, where did Samuel come from? He came from none other than the barren womb of Hannah. God has shown in the very presence of the life of Samuel his ability to bring about a righteous judge when it appeared that they were in short supply. And yet the people want to fully abandon God's judgment and they want to be cared for just like all the other nations. In verse 7 and 8, God tells Samuel to realize that the people were not so much rejecting Samuel as they were rejecting God. God reminds Samuel, this is par for the course. In so doing, he says, they're doing the exact same thing they've always done. And God reveals the irony of their concern. So while the people are so greatly concerned about the injustices of Samuel's sons, they seem so less concerned at the injustice of their idolatry and desire to be like the other nations. Good for the leaders to have the ability to see the nation's vulnerability to corrupt judges. But how troubling that they couldn't see, that they could see the pebble and miss the boulder. See the pebble of a corrupt judge and miss the boulder of deep idolatry. Like we can relate to the leaders in seeing our need for protection from the outside, I think it doesn't take much for us to also relate to seeing our need for protection from ourselves. I believe when each of us looks at our lives, when we consider our thoughts, when we consider our actions, we consider our words and our attitudes, there's enough there to raise some real concerns. There's enough there to trouble us. But what do we do with that trouble? This is key. The world around us tells us to look within ourselves, find the moral will and ability to get our house in order, get this fixed. There's a thousand books you can buy or programs you can listen to that'll get it fixed. This is nothing short of looking for a king like all the other nations. What we need is nothing like a therapy program or a good book or some religious activities. We need to admit our helplessness to King Jesus and trust that he will come from the outside and put our inside house in order. Like the, Israel, like the elders of Israel could see the problem in their day, so our broader culture can, can see certain transgressions and see them as troubling. But just wait. Like the weather, that will change. Many of you have witnessed this in your own lifetime. As you've watched things that were once shunned are now celebrated. Or things that were once permitted are now shunned. Our culture has the ability, like the judges in, or like the elders in Israel could see the problem of a bad judge. They have the ability to see small transgressions. But all the while, they are little 
if none concern with the deep idolatry of God's creatures failing to give him the due that he is deserved as the perfect holy God. We should feel vulnerability from the outside. There are so many things we can't control. And we should feel vulnerability from the inside. There are so many things that should trouble us. Finally, what led them to want a new king? Probably chiefly, the human desire for protection we can grasp. The human desire for protection we can grasp. Verse 5, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Verse 19, but the people refused to avoid, obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all of the nations. So we looked at the reason of protection from the outside. We looked at reason of protection from ourselves, from the inside. The third reason that they wanted to see that they wanted a king is they wanted a king they could see through their eyes of flesh and they would stop having to rely on the eyes of faith. Over and over, it says they want a king like the other nations. Well, what is it that the kings from the other nations have that Yahweh doesn't? What is it that Yahweh lacks that those other kings have? There's only one thing you could uh, even imagine to point to. And that is, they could lay their eyes on the king of the other nations. I'm telling you, stay with me here. You get right at the heart of some major parts of Christianity. Surely Yahweh had proven that he could and he would protect the people. Many times over, he'd fought and won the battles for them. Surely Yahweh had shown them that he could give them wise and just leaders. Think of all of the good judges that God had used to help the people. But the problem with those situations and those solutions is every time they have to rely on faith to believe that God is going to come through yet again. If you went to the other nations now, now you could walk up. You could walk up to the palace complex. You could see evidence of the riches and the strength of their king. Oh, it's a mighty king they have there. You, you may be able to even go around and see the buildings where their judges meet. Whoa, they got a good justice system. I bet they can fight off bribery over here. You could go see their army training grounds and maybe even see their weapon storehouses and know the strength of their armies. This is what they wanted. They wanted a king that they could see. And who could blame them? After all, the old English proverb, better to have a bird in the hand than to have two in the bush. Isn't it better to have something in your hand, in your grasp, than try to rely upon something you can't see? Oh, man, this is the heart of the rub, the struggle of Christianity. God calls on his people to trust him when they can't. See, and it is so hard. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is the assurance of things. Hope for the conviction of things. You can finish it. Not seen. Not grass. Think of the early tragic story of Esau. He thought so little 
of the incredible blessings of God's provision just because it wasn't immediately within his grasp. He tragically traded it in for a bowl of stinking soup. Go further back. Our forefathers, Adam and Eve, who are surrounded by the blessings of God, all of these blessings were right there within their grasp, but they couldn't say no to the idea of leaving one blessing out of their grasp. And they traded it all in. This is the story of human sin. This is the story of my heart's struggle in your heart's struggle. It's the struggle of the sin of unbelief. We don't want to rely upon the provision of God if we can't control it. It's the only way to understand this chapter. It's truly absurd otherwise. The people have Yahweh as a protector within and without. They want to trade him in for, uh, for some other kingdom. At least they can see it. I mean, listen again, listen to 10 through 18. Samuel told him all the words of the Lord. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to, be, and to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest. He'll make, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll make your male servants and your female servants and the best of your, sorry, he'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. Never has there been a harsher critique of placing your hope in big government as the one, as one commentator put it, is this. What's the governing verb of the new government they just put in? Take. He is going to take, he's going to take, and he's going to take. And what is he going to ask of you? Serve him? and give catch it the people traded in a king who constantly gave to them and served them who took nothing from them in order to get a king who would constantly take from them and expect them to serve him the people who were formed in the furnace of slavery in egypt now want to trade it all in just to have a king that they can see. If you want to understand the human predicament, look no further. The human spirit is so plagued with desire for control and knowledge about what's going to happen that will knowingly trade in a good and right king for that which cannot profit this is the picture of our wayward hearts unless god changes them from the inside out so let me suggest 
the vulnerabilities we feel, the anxieties we experience, I'm going to suggest to you, and I think this is countercultural, I want to call those not abnormal. I want to call those entirely human. They're God-given. That is, when things from the outside blow in and shake us and they frighten us, when they make us feel vulnerable, exposed, these remind us, I need a king who can protect me and provide for me. I can't do it on my own. When our souls show glimpses of our own personal disorder, when our actions and thought leaves us unsettled and disturbed, it reminds us, I need a king who is going to come and rule even the depths of my sinful heart and turn out this brokenness for good. But see, we live in a culture that has no room for such unsettledness. Our culture immediately, they want these gone and fixed, but the Bible anticipates them. We need not try to dismiss them. We need to let them drive us to our good king. The question is, where will we turn when these vulnerabilities get exposed? Will we turn to the immediate answer that we can see and grasp? or return to the one who is seen through the eyes of faith. Jesus said he came not to be served. Oh, what Mark 10, just what incredible words, especially in light of this. I didn't come to be served, I came to what? Serve, and he finishes it like this. Talk about running before us. And to give my life as a ransom for many. So what is our challenge? Our challenge is to see the goodness of King Jesus day in and day out through the eyes of faith. When the forces rage, will we trust the one who's good and right? So we close. I would encourage you, go read the farewell discourse that's given to us in John 13 through 17. I would especially focus in, you just want to read one of those chapters? Do chapter 14. Okay, go ahead and just do 15 too while you're there. But 14 to 15, listen how Jesus starts it. I think you'll get why I'm telling you to go there. 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Thank you, Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, Jesus completely anticipates the struggle we're going to have for vision and protection. And one of the coolest things he does there, I think I've got to find a better word than cool there. The great thing he does there is he gives us the Holy Spirit. And you know what he says the Holy Spirit will do? He'll give vision to believers. He'll help us see and choose the right king. In John chapter 15, verse 26, so I say, go ahead and, go ahead and knock out 15 while you're there. But when the helper comes, this is Jesus talking. It says, when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, listen to what he's going to do. I love this. He will bear witness about me. He's going to do what? He's going to bear witness about me. Well, how is that helpful? That's real helpful. You know what it does? It takes a king who feels like he's out of our grasp, and he does what? He brings it 
to my grasp. He takes the one I can't see, and he does what? He bears witness about it. If he bears witness about it, what can I now do? I can see him. I got it. I got it. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing constantly. This is why we gather week in and week out. We gather spirit-indwelt believers to sing about the goodness of our good King. We read together about our good King. We pray together to our good King. We eat and drink remembrance together of the good King. And we just pray together. God, one more week. Let me see the good King. Remind me, I've got a good King. I don't need to look for any other. Hold my heart fast to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'm thankful for it for so many reasons, but it's just, it's so good at diagnosing me. I want so bad to not feel vulnerable at all. I don't want to have to worry about anything. Things outside of me, I don't want to have to worry about a diagnosis for me or one of my family members. I don't want to have to worry about that. I don't want to have to worry about where the provision may come from. I don't want to have to fix my own brokenness. I just want it solved right now. And yet, Father, your word tells me you know that. You know that. You've placed these vulnerabilities here for a good reason. To remind me, I can't do this on my own. Father, I just pray for us. I pray that we won't lay these things aside, these vulnerabilities, these things that drive us crazy. We won't just want those gone. But instead, we'll drive, they'll drive us to a king good king and we'll lay ourselves our souls at your feet and say good king just do what you will thank you father that you've given us your spirit he's here he's in our hearts he's calling to us from your word and he's pointing out jesus over and over and he through christ he'll hold us fast Keep us close and get us home. Thank you for the promised King, Jesus Christ, who you gave to your people in the midst of their idolatry and brokenness you gave. Thank you. Father, I pray now that you give us a moment to reflect and, and come before you.